I'm Chris Sheets, and I'm your host for the Celebrity Podcast, where we sit down with celebrities from the worlds of music, sports, TV, and movies to hear their stories about the pets they love. He was in Harper's arms the entire afternoon, just hanging out, eating all the, you know, the hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that. How cool is this? Charlie doesn't even realize he's in the Prime Minister's arms. The Celebrity Podcast, available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, January 16th. We begin with our monthly visit by the nature doctor, Axel Morenschlager, Director of Conservation and Science with the Calgary Zoo. Dr. Morenschlager brings us a timely topic, the tale of two Canadian animals that not only survive, but thrive in bitterly cold weather. Next, we explore a new type of education that aims to focus on students learning in a creative, innovative, and empathetic setting. We learn about the Changemaker School. Then we catch up with Calgary celebrity chef Darren McLean. We talk about his love of Canadian Canadian cuisine and hear about his two new restaurants opening this month. And finally, look up, look way up. We meet six foot eight Zeus McClurkin from the Harlem Globetrotters ahead of their show next weekend. 709 now. We love it. It's our monthly visit with Dr. Axel Morenschlager, who is the Director of Conservation and Science at the Calgary Zoo. We've started calling him uh, the Nature Doctor because he is just so full of information about uh, some beasts that we might see on a regular basis and some little beasts that we might know nothing about. So you want to talk about, I love your title that you gave us. We've got Kermit on Ice and we've got (laughs) Strange Marmot Bedfellows. So let's talk about Kermit on Ice, first of all. And good morning, Axel. Good morning to you. Yeah, I just couldn't resist uh, this topic because I've got to be honest with you. I've been a little bit grumpy in the last couple of days with this weather. I think you're not alone. You know, I, I going to the C train station and back, it, I've just not been loving it. And uh, <laughs> and I think to myself, you know, why not? My my wife and I have worked for years on swift boxes at night in the cold and everything. But it just seems somehow more, I don't know, more adventurous, more glamorous and everything like that. But then I also think, well, at least I can bundle up. You know, I can put on as many layers as I want to. And and I'm in control of some of that. But some of the endangered species we work with don't have that option, right? And so, for example, the northern leopard frog that we work with is pretty amazing, pretty Canadian, many different ways. And beautiful. Beautiful. They have like these dots, right? Like that's why they're like a leopard frog. And and, um, but what they do is even worse uh, to me. What they do is they actually go into very cold water. So I don't love cold like ambient temperatures but if you make me go into like freezing water like those polar bear dips yeah, yeah no I, thanks no. i'm not a fan right no. and so but what they do is they actually go into the water and they'll go onto the bottom of a stream and they'll watch the ice sort of freeze up above them and they stay there in the darkness uh, under the ice for many months on end. So do they kind of put themselves in like a hypothermic state then? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a torpor. And so actually the way that we got into it is the, the Alberta government came to us 18 years ago with a bunch of frogs in their hand to the zoo and they said, are these dead or not? Because actually you, you wouldn't know. And so the hibernation is that? Yeah, so the, the vets were checking them and everything. Sure enough, they were dead, which is part of a bigger story of actually why they're in trouble. But they have these amazing adaptations. Even their cousins, the wood frogs, what they do is, is just incredible too. They go into the mud and they actually basically freeze solid. But what they have is they have like an antifreeze in their blood. And that antifreeze is made possible by eating lots of sugar and stuff, so being, so uh, a glucose-type antifreeze solution. I feel and, I might have that in my blood. We can See, all use that. Like sugar. Sugar. And, and that's, so we can throw you outside, <laughs> exactly. and then later we'll, we'll see if you thaw. <laughs> <laughs> Question about the northern leopard frog. Uh, how does it fare if it's like 30 degrees above? Does it have to f- seek out cooler temperatures and shade? 
Ah, yeah, it fare well in the sun? It does do very well in the sun. Actually, they, they, they like to, they're ectotherms, so basically they get their, their heat and their energy from that uh, in the summertime. So actually, they, they love that. They don't mind it at all. All weather. So they're very yeah. adaptable. You know, Very Canadian. Very Canadian. And so um, what's really amazing about them is, is uh, leopard frogs are actually doing badly on the prairies. They're actually doing um, very badly in BC where they're endangered. And under the lead of Leah Randall, our population ecologist that leads us, um, we've actually been helping the BC populations. This follows work that we've done for a long time in Alberta. So last year, for instance, she and Rebecca Stanton uh, moved 3,500 tadpoles between different locations in BC, also took some egg masses for, that are at risk, brought them to the zoo, hatched them out, put 500 tadpoles back, and now we have a breeding program. So right now what we have is we have some, fro uh, some frogs at the zoo that are actually kept in cold temperatures, some in less cold temperatures, and we're going to see which works better for the breeding. Great. But what's really cool is, you know, well, dare I say cool, is that mm -hmm. they, uh, to get northern leopard frog breeding, what you have to have first is you have to get the thumbs up. And what I mean by thumbs up is that the boys have to develop very big thumbs. And the big thumbs... You know thumbs, what they say, Axel. So oh, is that, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, size matters for this. <laughs> that just marks that they're ready as far as their puberty or something, the, the thumbs? It's actually so that they, when they mount the female, that they can hang on to her. Because you need a big thumb on. for that. You need a big thumb. And so basically the, uh, you want to, um, and they latch on. And, and unlike mating in maybe some species, it uh, can actually take hours. Uh, for some even even <laughs> days, and they um, and but if that all goes well, the the female will actually put the eggs out, and the males are externally fertilizing those eggs as they wow, come out. A fascinating Wowza. animal, isn't this cool? That really. And why are they endangered? What's the problem? Uh, so basically, it's a combination primarily of habitat loss, of pollutants, and of introduced diseases too. Okay. And so, um, being able to work through all that is where the science is really important. You have to do the science, to figure out what's going wrong, try things, you know, kind of adjust over time. How about the uh, marmots? Let's talk about these marmots that uh, also have no problem so with the temperatures. So we're sexy sex stuff with the animals today, what? right? The, yeah. the, the mar marmots like to... Who do they sleep with? Well, they sleep with <laughs> other marmots. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that they do is if we go west to Vancouver Island, actually there what you would have right now is you would have marmots that sort of decided somebody to go to sleep with and they actually go underground for many months on end under uh, up to 10, uh, 10 feet of snow. And uh, and there they stay in this incredible hibernation. Now, this species is incredibly endangered. I call them like the Canadian panda because they're so cute. And they were down to 33 individuals back in 2004. Wow. They would definitely be extinct if it wasn't for conservation breeding and release programs and the science. So we work with the Marmot Recovery Foundation in, in close collaboration. The breeding program that we have here actually, again, is the irony, is one of the things that we worry about, as opposed to what you and I might like, is we worry about Chinooks. Yeah. We actually don't want them to be oh, okay. rousing. We want them to, to, to stay, stay in this sleeping. torpor, right? And the, uh, the amazing thing is that our keepers will actually go and check on them and in the wintertime, weigh them, make sure they're fine, and they're actually cold to the touch. Um, but it's a real opportunity at that point in time also for our strange bedfellow program. So what it is, is that at that point, right, because they're just totally tired and mm -hmm. sort of sleepy, is that we can actually sneak in some future mate. 
So they will uh, eventually wake up and sort of ha- start blinking their eyes and, and might have one of those mornings where they're kind of looking across their... <laughs> I don't remember dead. who you are. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I didn't, don't remember falling asleep with wow. this one. And you wake up to them. I mean, I've heard about this in some other species, but... Yeah, but, uh, me too. You know, oh, have you? Yeah, yeah good. Go ahead. No, finish. I'm just fascinated. Uh, me too. Um, do you think <laughs> that when they're under the snow and there's 10 feet, that it acts like an insulation? Like, how, it, can, yeah. how can you sleep like that? It's exactly that. And actually... Uh, one of the threats for Vancouver Island marmots is uh, our deaths during hibernation. So if that insulative layer, um, because it gets too warm or things like that, if that starts to break down, that can actually threaten the marmots there. But yeah, they're down there and they're they're in this perfect thermal regulation. Again, they have somebody to cuddle with too, and which is nice. When they wake up with that stranger, do they go, oh, well, uh, whatever, you're here now. So and then they, uh, it's they, very, they mate? It's a very good question. So what, we actually did some research over some time where we would see marmots actually doing the right thing you know, copulating and everything like that, but they wouldn't always have young. So we actually did some science, we published it to see who mates and who doesn't. And one of the things was that, um, is that we found out that those marmots that are together for at least a year have a better chance. You so they're kind of romantic. They kind of, you know, they're, they they're, they're not just one night stand. They, <laughs> no, <they're>... definitely not. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, we could go so many directions with that. <laughs> Appreciate your time and keep warm, Dr. Axel. All right. Thank you so much. Dr. Axel Morenschlager. We call him the nature doctor. He's the director of conservation and science at the Calgary Zoo. Does the idea of a school where the needs of your creative, innovative, and empathetic child are fostered in an emotionally and physically healthy environment sound like a dream? Well, that was the vision of Changemaker School founder, Christy Krejci. Her dream has become a reality. The school is opening this year, and she joins us now. Good morning, Christy. Good morning. This Hi. is amazing. So tell us about your vision. What was, what was it that you were hoping to create here? I wanted to create a really unique alternative um, to a more traditional model of school. Um, I am really passionate about mental health, and I feel that if we're supporting the whole child first, I think academics soon follow. Is there a model like this anywhere else in the nation or anywhere in the world, Christy? Yes, actually, um, when I was doing my master's in educational leadership this year, um, I went on a change-making course, and um, the international change-making course and I visited San Diego Changemaker Schools and um, in Madrid, Spain. And it's not a franchise and it's not um, a specific curriculum you follow, but a Changemaker School um, is part of a, a greater network. And at the core of these schools is really just empathy and respect for everyone in the building. So teachers have respect for students and students for teachers. And that empathy piece is really, um, it sounds subtle, but it really makes a huge difference in how everyone approaches that um, education. So the Changemaker School here in Calgary, it opens in August. You've got registration, though, starting very soon this month. So what grade is, what grades will be here and ages of the kids that will be at the school? We're offering kindergarten through grade six in our first year, and then we'll be adding grade seven and eight the following year. How has interest been since you've announced this? Are you getting a lot of interest from people? Yes, actually, it's been quite remarkable. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> we're pretty excited. So, yes, applications open on Monday. Um, while it is um, a first-come, first-serve as far as applications go, um, we are still kind of screening for best-fit students, um, students who would really thrive in an environment where we're actually going to be spending at least 50% to 80% of every day outside in most weather conditions, not a week like 
right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but most other days. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I love the concept. Does this fall under the, the Board of Education then, the, the regular board? Yes. Um, no, sorry, not the um, not like the Calgary board, okay. but it does. We will be accredited. Um, and so that means we are following the program of studies. Um, it does mean that um, we are approved by Alberta Education and the, and the overall government. Um, but we are independent, so we're our own school, and we do have some leeway to do things in our own way. So can we think of it almost like some of the other specialized schools in Calgary, whether it's a science-based or arts-based, where you're still going to get your core education, but uh, just kind of a, a, a different influence and some different options? Yes, exactly. It's just for a different type of student who needs a lot more flexibility and a lot more creativity in their day and a lot more movement. Um, and then that outdoor piece is kind of a unique, probably unique to us, um, we want to spend as much time outside and in nature as possible. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's an alternative. I mean, let's face it, we're hearing more and more. I have two young kids in school. I hear about the, the other kids who they just they can't sit still. And, and schools are finding other ways to, to make sure that they don't just have to sit in one place and not move because that's not the way many kids learn best. So I love that you're, you're taking this creative approach to it. Is, it, is there a cost then to, to go to this school? There is. Unfortunately, to be an independent and to do something really different right now, um, you do have to be a little bit outside and do it independently. So we don't get funding in our first year. Um, so there is a tuition and everyone can look on the website to find out whether that's going to work for their family or not. But we are governed by a not-for-profit, as um, most independent schools actually are. Okay. And uh, we will be audited by the Alberta government <clears throat> How do you uh, get your teachers? Because I'm uh, thinking that it's a unique experience for the students, but probably unique for the teachers as well. Well, we're actually surprised. Um, I actually have 100 resumes on my desk now. So I think teachers are really excited for this kind of... They want this. They want to be able to step out of the classroom and have some hands-on lessons for their students. They seem really excited about the idea. So I don't think that'll be... Um, our main hurdle. <laughs> no doubt. Well, it seems like a brilliant idea. Good luck to you. It's uh, calgarychangemakerschool.com. And again, you have a, a registration coming up and a parents' night, right? That's right. On Sunday is our first um, open house and parent information night in our brick and mortar building in Springbank. And then applications open on Monday morning. Good luck to you. It's a great idea. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. That's Christy Krejci, founder of Changemaker School. And again, calgarychangemakerschool.com. Chef Darren McLean, he's one of Canada's most acclaimed and outspoken chefs and restaurateurs. You may have seen him on the Netflix show, The Final Table, where he ended up being a finalist. Here in town, his Japanese restaurant, Shokunin, has been voted one of the country's top 50 restaurants for three years in a row. Or maybe you remember his first uh, joint, Downtown Food. I loved Downtown Food. Mm-hmm. McLean opened the groundbreaking Greenfish last fall, North America's first fully sustainable sushi eatery, takeaway, and delivery. Bottom line, the guy keeps busy and he isn't slowing down, but we've got him to sit down for a brief second with us to talk about his two brand new ventures. Good morning, Chef uh, McLean. Hey, good morning, I'm you Chef Darren, because no, I'm me, a fan. Well, I appreciate that, but we're friends, so you just call me Darren. We so. are friends, uh, but you know what? Uh, what you're doing in Calgary, I, I don't think it's ever been done before, and you're going to continue with two more restaurants. We'll get into your concept of food, but tell us about Nupo, first of all, followed up by eight. Sure, yeah, no problem, uh, Nupo is uh, a name that's raised for my, or sorry, is a restaurant that's named for my mother. So her last name is Nupanin, which is too long to put on a sign. <laughs> so I, I, I told her, I said, look, my mom's five foot tall. So I said, I just 
I just shortened it to be the same as you. So it's a <laughs> new bow, it. it's no problem. Uh, and it's a, a vegetable-focused restaurant that uh, focuses heavily on dry-aged sushi and vegetables. Uh, there's no meat in the restaurant. Uh, we focus just on making the best fish and sushi that we can in our dry-aging chamber and also really innovative, fun, plant-forward, gluten, vegan dishes. Nice. And because that wasn't enough, you're also opening eight this one's a really cool concept, very exclusive, and it's going to make everybody want to be there. I, I hope so. Um, it is it is exclusive in the sense that uh, there is only eight seats, yep. and I'm only available three nights a week to cook. Um, so eight is innocuously named for the eight seats of the restaurant. So the restaurant seats only eight, therefore we called it eight. I'm not the most clever guy in the world. <laughs> well, when it comes hey, to naming. keep it simple, right? Um, <laughs> Let's tell people what it is. So what kind of food will that one be? So eight is an interesting concept. It's uh, hearkening back to downtown food and the, the food that uh, I really believe in. It's a restaurant that focuses on Canadian cuisine. And when I say Canadian cuisine, I think that, uh, I'll, I'll back it up just a little bit, but there's three things that make cuisine happen. You have the ingredients that you have locally, you have the people or the movement of people and culture, and you have time. So a great example of that in Japanese culture is that tempura is actually brought over to Japan in the 16th century by Japanese or by Jesuit missionaries from Portugal. They applied that technique to their local ingredients, mm. and 400 years later, we have the cuisine of tempura that and we know delicious. today. And it's unbelievable. <laughs> but that's, that's my point, is that cuisine doesn't really belong to anybody. Cuisine is actually affected by the movement of people. And nowhere is that more apparent in our cultural mosaic here in Canada, where everybody gets to be who they are. So if I want to, for example... Um, we have a dish on the menu. It's a braised beef ravioli, and then we hit it with a sauce of miso and foie gras emulsified. Then, to me, that's a bit of Canadiana. I'm just taking from the cultures here, and that's what led me to be so successful on the final table. I've always thought that being a Canadian chef, and I hope all Canadian chefs think about this when they hear it, I thought that being a chef in Canada was a terrible disadvantage because, you know, it's not France, it's not Italy, and, and I got onto the final table and went through and I did well, maybe because, you know, I work hard, but also because I'd seen every form of that cuisine in one small piece or another. Granted, applied to our local ingredients. And so at eight, we want to have these Canadian reflection menus where we actually look at our nation, not just for the local ingredients, but the people that live here. Every immigrant culture, mm -hmm. be it Finnish, Hungarian, Vietnamese, Japanese, Chinese, in a way that actually makes sense and has cohesion. So we're not looking to define Canadian cuisine. We're just looking to spark that conversation. You obviously have a love for the Japanese cuisine, and you could just pick up a book or try to study under somebody here in Canada, but you spent uh, quite a bit of time in Japan. And what is it about that style of cuisine that you want to bring back to Canada so much and it is such a passion for you? What I like about Japanese cuisine is that the ingredient is always the hero. So, and it's very regional. And so in Canada, we struggle because we're not allowed to trade interprovincially. So we know our Alberta ingredients, but we can't, for example, I can't sell a perfectly good cheese from Quebec unless it's federally inspected. So crazy, it, which is like absolutely <laughs> ludicrous. Politics of uh, yeah. and, and, and we, you know, we want to talk about, you know, strengthening our economy and diversifying. We can start right now why getting rid of provincial trade barriers and saying, hey, let's actually learn about our cuisine. But that regionality is something I want to bring back is the ingredient is the star. And so they and they know they know which area has produces the best food. And I, I want to showcase that um, on eight seats for Canadians to see what we have available around us. Darren, you've obviously discovered, you know, that being a Canadian chef is a, a, a positive, not a negative, as you thought it was. Hugely positive. Why stay here in Calgary, though? Do we have a, a really cool food scene <laughs> what about here? Toronto? That Why makes don't you, you move to Toronto? Yeah, I mean, you obviously you're opening multiple restaurants in this city in a tough economic time. Mm -hmm. Is it so for you? 
You know, the the greatest, the single greatest thing about being an Albertan and a, and, uh, and a Canadian, but also specifically from Calgary, is that the entrepreneurial spirit here is incredible. And if you want to go after it, and I'm not saying this in this pull-up-your-bootstrap sort of way, the truth is, is that we have a scene, and especially in the restaurants, where people support each other. For a while it was shaky, but people are looking at each other, and when you hit the hard times, you have to just really dig deep and go further. People still want to dine. Mm -hmm. The city is incredibly dynamic. It's incredibly diverse. You know, my Calgary is more than, you know, what people maybe see, you know, the Saddle Dome and a steak. My Calgary has amazing Chinese, Vietnamese restaurants. There's amazing French restaurants. I mean, you've got one just around the corner here at Cassis. It's just such a vibrant, excited spirit. And, and yeah, people get down. Everybody's down right now. Look, Calgary has always been an ebb and flow. We know that. Yeah. Oil goes up, oil goes down. You know, we get a pipeline or a rumor of a pipeline, then we don't. And we're ready for it. You know, it's, it's there's nowhere I'd rather open a restaurant because I believe in the people who live here and I want to cook for the people who live here. As I'm proud of being from Calgary, on the final table, it wasn't a chef from Toronto or BC or Montreal. It was right here. And I want to bring that home. Well, we want to uh, come to your home, your table. Yeah. Yeah. We could give out like 15 uh, email addresses, but, uh, you know, to get more info, is it chefdarrenmcclain.com for all your joints? Yeah, I mean, chefdarrenmcclain.com is good. You know, beat them, B-Y-D-M, beat them. That's uh, by Darren McLean is the restaurant group. So, uh, yeah, you can please chefdarrenmcclain.com or hit them all. Aid is for everyone, and we do our best. It's the most democratic way that we can get everybody in is just make a reservation and trust me. Eventually you'll get in. Well, eventually you'll get in, but also (laughs) you're going to see, how do I put this delicately? You're going to see a whole bunch of Canadian stuff you've never seen before. Cool. And we're really excited to share that with you. We're excited to eat it. (laughs) Yes. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much, Chef Darren McLean. All right, he's six foot eight with a smile that lights up the room. He's Zeus McClurkin, and he's a superstar with the Harlem Globetrotters who are going to be performing at the Dome next Friday night. He's back in studio with us. Hi, Zeus. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Did you uh, did you enjoy the weather that we've uh, you know, like rolling out the Canadian red carpet for you? Did I ever? It's a uh, bone chilling weather. Uh, the weatherman was saying uh, today it's. Negative 30-something, but it feels like negative 41. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Where, where that's you, how where, we do where, it. Where are you from? Do you have experience, uh, experiences growing up at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. We have a different type of cold. It doesn't quite get to your bones like this one does. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that it's always cold in the winter, that's why I chose an indoor sport to play. Smart um, man. Basketball. Smart man. You're going to heat things up at the Saddle Dome. But do you, I mean, you must love it because you get to be the spokesperson for the Harlem Globetrotters, mm-hmm. but it's got to be just a joy to go to work every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, think about this organization. We've been around for 94 years, putting smiles on people's faces and the impacts that we've made in communities, 124 countries and provinces around the world. It's been amazing. Uh, Pushing the Limits. It's a new tour. And I think people I grew up going and I brought my kids a few years back. They loved it. So you guys got to keep it fresh. What is the Pushing the Limits tour? Andy, it's amazing this year. We're doing stuff we've never tried before. Uh, We have our Magic Circle is going to be with a glow-in-the-dark basketball in the dark at the very beginning of the game. Um, We're also uh, attempting a world record live for you at the game. We're going to be shooting the furthest blindfolded hook shot you've ever seen and ever done live in a game. So we're 
we're hoping to be able to make that uh, at the Saddle Dome uh, on the 24th of January. That's awesome. You know, I think it's kind of fun that, you know, a basketball breaks out at a Harlem Globetrotters night because that's almost secondary, isn't it? To, yeah. to you know, kind of involving the kids in it. Oh, yeah. And that crowd interaction is what we really pride ourselves on. I mean, you can catch us up in the stands. We'll shoot shots from the stands. We'll eat the poutine, you know, because we get hungry during the game. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's all about having a good time with our fans. We even incorporated a fifth quarter this year where you have 30 minutes after each game to get a meet and greet with your favorite Harlem Globetrotter. Outstanding. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's talk about the the past because 94 years of history, and this is called the Pushing the Limits Tour. I'm wondering, do the generals show up at all? Because I know (laughs) that your arch nemesis are the generals, Mm -hmm. and they play so dirty. Yeah, they do. so dirty. You got to watch those guys. Uh, they did beat us one time. It was in 1971. It was before we were all born. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah long time ago, uh, and it wasn't our fault. So I, I can't tell you what happened then, but I know we're going to be beating them this year. Fair oh, enough. great. Mm-hmm. Fair the enough. generals. I love Yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> generals hoops. Uh, let's talk about a little bit of your history. How did you get to this point, and how did you become a Harlem Globetrotter? What's the tryout process like? Oh, well, it's just like any professional sport. So we have scouts that check people out while they're overseas or uh, playing in college. Um, I actually used to play against the Globetrotters for the Washington Generals. Oh, yeah, you so were a traitor back then. Yes, definitely. I know that the grass is greener on this side. Of the fence, <laughs> but um, eventually they got tired of me dunking on them and they signed me over to a contract. That's how it worked That's out. That's how it worked awesome. out. Well, you know, besides the fact they obviously have a love of basketball, I'm not sure if NBA was in, in your plans. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, the places you've traveled, can you list off some of the places that the Globetrotters have afforded you to travel? Yeah, I've been to 26 countries around the world. Um, by far, Calgary is the best uh, place I've ever been. But besides He's never Calgary, said that in any no. other city, so that's no. what's cool about yeah. that, too. Besides Calgary, <laughs> uh, I got a chance to go to Israel, uh, just walk the streets of Jerusalem, went to uh, Paris. I went to Uzbekistan just last year, which I didn't even know where that was. Mm-hmm. That's in Central Asia. Um, just some amazing places. I couldn't even name all of them. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> but it's a gift, really, isn't it? But you know what? You've given a lot of young kids a gift because you've got a backstory and you kept working and you mm-hmm. kept trying. And I think that's a great moral for the young people who go watch you guys play. Yeah. When I was younger, uh, I wasn't always tall. Uh, a lot of my coaches and teammates told me I was too nice and I, I smiled too much. I had one guy tell me one time, <laughs> he said, uh, all you do is smile and dunk, man. That's all you do. <laughs> is and that a problem? Yeah, I know. Well, today, that's what I get paid to do. So <laughs> it ended up working out for me. In fact, I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records now for the most slam dunks in one minute. I made 16 dunks wow. in one minute. So when I see those guys nowadays who, who were those naysayers, um, I let them know that they pushed me to, to come to this level. And I, I let kids know all the time, um, if you're a nice person, stay a nice person. Don't let people try to change you and tell you that you have to be mean in order to make it in this world. There's a there's a place for you. Don't have to be mean. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, sport of basketball has to be a, a point of pride for you that you're promoting a sport that you love and uh, kids might go away. Uh, picking up a Harlem Globetrotters uh, basketball and taking up the sport. Absolutely. I mean, a a lot of times, Andy, we're kids' first introduction to the game of basketball. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they see these guys and girls on the court playing and having a good time and enjoying themselves. And I think that's that's the mark of a successful team. If you look in the NBA, it's these guys are, like, leaving teams to go play with their friends. You know, and play with people that they enjoy the game with. That's uh, that's what you want to do. This game, uh, winning and losing is is a part of it, but having a good time and growing as a, a person is what's really important. And being able to spin the ball on your finger. That helps. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Andy is a big basketball fan, you know. Are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right-handed. I can give it a shot myself, but maybe you could help me. Too. Yeah, yeah. Can I can help you Let me get the right index finger. Index You finger. make it really strong. That's this one. Not the middle one. <laughs> Not the traffic finger. <laughs> Not the the traffic finger. I didn't know there was a name for that. <laughs> Here we go, right there. Ah. 
Okay, so we've got Zeus spinning the ball and Andrew just holding his finger you randomly in the air. You got it. You got <laughs> look at that. He, Zeus just made well, Andrew a superstar. And we are filming this. It'll be up on Facebook Live. Yes. Uh, we'll make sure that you can see the entire interview as we almost trash. Take the ball away from Andrew Schultz. You, you you never tried out for the NBA, did you? It might surprise a lot of people, but no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I'll tell you what, that's a, that's a skill. But having said that, the entertainment value, like you say, if you can't keep track of the score, it doesn't, doesn't even matter, matter, does it? It doesn't. You don't have to be a basketball fan to enjoy a Harlem Globetrotter game. You just got to want to have a good time with your family and friends. Yeah. Come on inside. Leave this cold weather outside. Exactly. <laughs> have a good time with us at the Saddle Dome. What do you hear from the kids? The kids who actually, because you bring a lot of them down onto the floor with oh, you, yeah. don't you? Yeah. It's like a dream come true for them, man, to be able to come down there. Because, you know, uh, kids look up to athletes literally and figuratively. Well, everybody mm-hmm. looks up to you. Yeah. You're 6'8". <laughs> and my mom always told me that when I was a kid, you know, because I, I was a uh, kids just always looked up to me and uh, we we try to use that magnetism for good so to speak you know later on today i'm actually going to an elementary school we have an anti-bullying program uh, that you. we do and uh, you know bullying is a huge epidemic nowadays in schools all around the world mm-hmm. and uh, we get a chance to use that magnetism that we have to, to pour back into these kids Tickets still available for the 24th? Yeah, all you got to do is go to HarlemGlobeCharters.com. You can grab tickets for all our games. Um, and you can buy a Zeus jersey because that'll make you taller. Well, nobody else wants any other kind of jersey. This There's only a Zeus jersey <laughs> in my true. world, for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. Zeus McClurkin, Harlem Globetrotters at the Dome, Friday, January 24th. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Check it out. I didn't break anything, Sue. Thanks for listening to the Morning News Podcast. Make sure you don't miss any of the latest news from around Calgary by subscribing to the Morning News Podcast. And if you like the show, take a minute and give us a rating. See you tomorrow on the Morning News.